we've begun a new series to rediscover the real Jesus. The best way to do this, of course, is to read the original sources. And so we've been looking at the earliest account recorded by Mark. Mark put this gospel together from the eyewitness testimony of Peter, one of the original disciples of Jesus. Now today, special advisors work hard with politicians to get their message across in in short, punchy statements. I'm sure you'll all remember the European referendum, take back control. Or the general election, get Brexit done. And at the moment, the government message has been a trilogy of punchy phrases. Stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. Now, it's interesting to me that in Mark's account, the first recorded words of Jesus are three punchy preaching points. Take a look at verse 15. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, last week we thought about that first point, the time has come, and we saw how Mark introduced us first to John the Baptist as the voice in the wilderness. John the Baptist uh, preceded the greatest turning point in history. He's the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He, He represents, he summarizes the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures, the first part of our Christian Bibles, by introducing the arrival of Jesus. The old era of promise was over, and now the time of fulfillment had come in Jesus. Now, John kept preaching that message, baptizing people in the River Jordan, right up to the point where he was put in prison. For it is always dangerous to be a preacher who calls people to repent of their sins. I mean, such a message from God is seldom appreciated and it's not appreciated today by people who want to be respected and validated in their own sinful choices. And it was at the point of the imprisonment of John the Baptist that Jesus began his public ministry, preaching the good news of of God, saying, the time has come. I'm going to think about that second statement now, that second punchy point, the kingdom of God has come near. I mean, what does that mean? Well, we get some clues in verses 9 to 13 as we read the first two events at the start of Jesus' public ministry, the baptism and the temptation of Jesus. To introduce us to Jesus uh, as the servant king and the serpent crusher. And so I want us to think about his baptism that shows us that he is the servant king. I mean, these events are are full of surprises, aren't they? Uh, I think perhaps the biggest surprise is that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan River. I mean, wasn't this baptism for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins? What was Jesus doing getting baptised by John? I mean, the New Testament is clear. Jesus was uniquely sinless. So why start this public ministry by making this the first event? Well, notice with me that this was no ordinary baptism. I mean, I've baptized quite a few people in my life, uh, some of them over there, and I've never witnessed anything like verses 10 to 11. Jesus saw the heavens being torn open 
and God's spirit descending upon him like a dove and a voice from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Totally unique, but packed full of significance. And I want to just briefly unpack, and unpack it. The voice from heaven in verse 11. Here is God's statement about Jesus. And it's fascinating that when God spoke, he chose to quote from his own scriptures. In Psalm 2, God states this. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And God declares to the king, you are my son. I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. It's a promise that God would set up a king in Jerusalem who would rightly rule over all other nations. It would be a worldwide kingdom. The nations would be his inheritance. And enemies who sought to oppose this king would be doomed to useless failure. When the king brings down his iron scepter on them, they will be like clay pottery smashed into bits. I don't know whether you watched the last night at the proms from the Albert Hall. Um, they always uh, finish with rule Britannia and uh, words written with all the braggadocia of, of being an empire at the time. Of course, now as we sing it, it's a bit of a joke. And this psalm was written a thousand years before Jesus. And for many hundreds of years, this psalm must have sounded a bit daft, really. A bit like rural Britannia sounds to us today. Because none of the kings of Israel experienced this worldwide kingdom. In fact, they were more often ruled over by kings and empires. But finally, as Jesus comes out of the river Jordan, heaven speaks, You are my son, whom I love with you, I am well pleased. This is God's declaration that Jesus is the one referred to in Psalm 2. Here is the king who will inherit the nations. Here is the king who will rule over God's everlasting kingdom. No enemies will be able to defeat his rule. Here is the only person worthy to be that king. As God declares, whom I love, this is the one loved by God the one who is the delight of heaven, the one in whom heaven is well pleased, the fully obedient, sinless son. Now, as we continue to explore Mark's account, we're going to see when heaven declares, you are my son, it's a far bigger statement than recognizing Jesus to be just a human king. It's a revelation that in Jesus, we're dealing with God himself, God the son, the son of God. I mean, that's the good news that Mark wants us to respond to he said it in his very opening verse remember the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah the Son of God but not only is there a voice from heaven but Jesus saw this the spirit descending on him like a dove as it says in verse 10 now why is that significant again for so many reasons but let's just consider one in the book of Isaiah the prophet who wrote 700 years before Jesus we get a series of promises about a mysterious person called the servant of God. God would anoint his servant with his spirit to accomplish purposes of bringing justice and salvation to the world. Earlier in the online service, uh, we read from Isaiah 42, which contains this promise. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. 
I will keep you, God says to the servant. I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. That would be the amazing mission of the servant. And these servant songs continue. In Isaiah chapter 49, there's another servant song where God declares this. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant that restores the tribes of Jacob and brings back those who, have, uh, who I have kept. I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation will reach the ends of the earth. And famously in Isaiah 53, there's another servant song where the cost of this salvation becomes apparent. This servant will experience great suffering in order to save. He would be pierced for the transgressions and sins of his people. Their healing would come at the cost of his wounds. And so, at the very introduction of this account of the good news about Jesus, Mark is laying out the significance of who Jesus is and why he came. Jesus is the servant king. I mean, the scriptures promise the special Messiah king. And at his baptism, the voice from heaven reveals, Jesus is that promised Messiah king. You are my son. The scripture promised a servant of the Lord who would bring salvation and the spirit descending on him like a dove reveals that Jesus is that suffering servant who would bring that salvation. Jesus is the servant king. Do you see that the kingdom of God has come near because the king of that kingdom has arrived. The kingdom of God is not about national geography, it is where God reigns. And people enter into that kingdom as they come under the saving rule of King Jesus. But back to the original question. Why is this sinless king, the one who is the delight of heaven, why is he coming to be baptized like a sinner? And here we get to the heart of the good news about Jesus. The servant king has come to stand in the place of sinners. Jesus starts his public ministry as he finished it. In both places, the servant king has come to stand in the place of sinners. In his baptism, he's baptized like a sinner. In his death upon the cross, he dies like a sinner. Jesus had come to stand in our place. Mark ties the, the baptism and the death of Jesus together by using the same word on both accounts, torn open. At his baptism, the heavens are torn open and the Spirit descends on him and there's a voice from heaven. At the end, after Jesus' final cry from the cross, the temple is torn open from top to bottom. That temple curtain which blocked access for people to enter the most holy place in the temple that symbolized the presence of God, when Jesus dies on the cross, it is torn open to allow access for people to come in. His suffering and death was the moment of salvation that he accomplished it there on the cross and it is available to all who will come to God through Jesus. They will have full access to God and they'll be able to be part of his eternal kingdom. A hymn uh, we love to sing, which captures the wonder of the cost of salvation, says this, Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a saviour bearing shame, 
the scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. I mean, that's the brilliant news about Jesus. Moral failures, messed up people, ruined sinners have a saviour in Jesus. He stood in my place so that I could freely stand before God, totally forgiven and accepted. Any and every person who finds their refuge in Jesus will also know that God views them exactly how he views his son. We become his much-loved sons and daughters who are the delight of our Heavenly Father. And I want to say to you now, if, if, you're, if you're watching this and you're trusting Jesus today, then know this, this is God's word for you. You are my son. You are my daughter whom I love. With you I am well pleased. All because Jesus is the sinless servant king who suffered in our place. What grace, what love. But not only did he come to stand in the place of sinners, the servant king came to do battle with our greatest enemy, Satan. He is the serpent crusher. For no sooner is Jesus baptized than immediately the spirit sends him out into the wilderness to do battle with Satan. If you begin reading your Bibles from Genesis, you'll, you'll see in Genesis 3 that Satan appeared in the, as a serpent in the Garden of Eden and tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God. And they listened to the serpent instead of God and they fell from their state of grace. And even as the world was cursed, God gave a promise. One day he would send one who would be born who would be the serpent crusher. And no sooner is Jesus anointed by the Spirit that the Spirit sends him out to confront the serpent in the wilderness. The wilderness is described as a, a dangerous place, a place of wild animals. And there's an opponent who wants to stop Jesus before he gets started. You see, not everyone is thrilled about the kingdom of God. The evil one has his own dominion. He doesn't want to lose his influence and power. The Christians in Rome would know about the temptations to desert Jesus as Emperor Nero persecuted them. Sometimes tying animal skins around them, throwing them into the Colosseum to be ripped apart by wild animals for the amusement of the crowd. I wonder whether Mark includes that wild animal phrase to know that Jesus has gone there ahead of us. You see, behind the physical reality, there's a spiritual reality, and there's one who wants to tempt us away from following Jesus. And while we don't get a lot of detail about the temptation of Jesus, what is clear is that while Adam and Eve failed, Jesus did not fail. The new Adam has come and withstands Satan and puts him on notice that he will be defeated. You see, the kingdom of God has come near because the king has come near. The servant king, the serpent crusher. In the face of all opposition and in apparent weakness of the cross, this suffering of the king will defeat all our enemies, sin, Satan, death itself. So how can we respond? Well, that third punchy preaching point, remember? Repent and believe the good news. This is actually why people find Christianity so confronting. Jesus calls on us to change. Repent. I mean, it means turning away from our sin and to turn away from living as if I'm the only person in the charge of my life and to believe in this gospel. You see, we turn from our sin and our self-centeredness to trust 
Jesus as our saviour and acknowledge his rightful rule and authority over our lives. There's a challenge and a comfort to this. I mean, in the online service, Barry shared uh, how 46 years ago he came to that confronting point. He realised that there were things in his life that needed to change and he seemed powerless to change it. And he knew trusting Jesus would make a massive uh, change in his life and yet he discovered the joy of repenting and believing and finding forgiveness of his sins and finding that God did put his Holy Spirit within him, enable him to begin to change and to live with Jesus as his Saviour and Lord. The King has come and he commands this of us, repent. Notice with me, it's not an option. It's not, it's not a, a, a sort of a, if you want to do it. He says, repent. And it's an ongoing command for disciples of Jesus. The way we start is the way we go on. We daily repent. Repentance starts in our minds and it works itself out through our whole lives, throughout our life. For Jesus claims authority over our sex life, our family life, our finances, our entertainment, our marriages, our, our time, our business, our everything. We repent and we believe the good news. To keep trusting him as your king and saviour. To know that he has suffered and died in our place and rose again to secure our forgiveness and our pardon. To secure our freedom from sin, Satan and a slavish fear of death itself. Now we're living through unprecedented times of disruption and calamity with the threat of the coronavirus. Could this be a time where God is trying to get our attention? Maybe there's someone who's never responded and now is the time that God wants to say to you, repent and believe the good news. And my Christian friends who've begun repenting and believing the good news, keep repenting and believe the good news. It will surely be something we will never be ashamed of doing.